Welcome back, podcast listeners, here for episode 146. And Tony, before I introduce our guest today, it's a really good lead on from um, last week's podcast with Tracy Lamb. It is. We're uh, sticking to the airplane theme. Uh, although Tracy was in civilian uh, airline, uh, Shams is a squadron leader in the RAF, a retired now squadron leader from the RAF. So absolutely, we're um, both amazing women who have done some amazing things in male-dominated industries, in this case being the RAF or the military uh, for Shamsa. I'll go through the bio first and then, then we'll introduce our guest. But Shams Ali is an Air Force veteran of Afghanistan, Papua New Guinea and the Middle East region with 13 years service as a logistics officer. She recently joined human capital team at Deloitte as a senior manager, um, manager in workforce transformation, helping organisations drive meaningful and holistic change. 2020, Shams also co-founded Propel Her Australia, the Defence Women Leadership Series, an online hub for resources specific to women's career development experience in the Australian defence and the public sector setting. Additionally, and Tony, this is where the relationship comes about. Um, she sits on the board of uh, board of directors for Carry On Victoria, uh, a leading veteran support organisation for veteran crisis in housing in Victoria. Now, I believe it's about 40,000 years a night um, that you guys provide. Uh, 40,000 nights a year, Jamie, so it's uh, yeah. accommodation, not years a night. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so we yeah. do. do. It's uh, supporting veterans, so it's it's an ama- it's a 90-year-old charity, an amazing organisation, and that's where I met Shamsa when she became a director um, yeah. as well. And yeah. she, was actually, she was actually serving in the Air Force when she first uh, took on that voluntary role as well. So you, you both sit on that board pro bono, but Shamsa is also a trained leadership coach with a special interest in emerging female leader. Shamsa, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast with Tony and I today. Thank you so much. It's nice to um, catch up with Tony again because of COVID, we haven't been able to be as face-to-face as much as we would like. So it's lovely to be with you both today. Yeah, I think, how long have you been directing now, Carry On? About a year and a half, coming on two years? Yeah, coming up to two years in October, so a year and a half. Yeah, and we've actually only met each other face-to-face once. Yeah, that's so, right. That's been the power <laughs> of in Geelong. Yeah, for, for a couple of days down in Geelong for, for a uh, board meeting down there. So it's the first time we actually got – and it was actually the same with a couple of the directors, actually. First time we actually met face-to-face. Well, I think we're a 90-year-old organisation, but certainly we're getting with the technological times for sure. Definitely. And I think I think also, Shams, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think with Carry On, you were the first RAF uh, director of Carry On, certainly the first RAF female director uh, of Carry On, but I actually believe you're actually the first RAF uh, director. Uh, I think I was a little bit of a diversity tick there, being um, female, Air Force, and also a contemporary veteran as well. So the trifecta, which is um, reflecting the the changing face of veterans in Victoria, for sure. Oh, and it was definitely something that was driven by Kyle as well. I mean, uh, I've I've not absolutely zero military background. The closest I've got to military background was doing some army cadets at school. So it's uh, so I, I think I was one of the first civilian uh, directors who had zero military background whatsoever. Uh, so I actually felt very, very honoured uh, being asked by Kyle uh, whether I would consider joining the board as well. You've been a fantastic asset to it. That's the power of a, a good board of directors is bringing, you know, our diversity makes us stronger. So absolutely fantastic board to be part of. 
Now, Shams, I, you have a wonderful story, and, and um, uh, you know, I, I jumped on your LinkedIn this morning to see your background and, and covered over after Tony explained sort of, you know, how you guys had met and, and sort of the story. But I guess let's let's start of you joining the RAF, um, the Royal Air Force. How did that decision happen? I guess coming out of school, you know, what what made you decide that you wanted to join? It always starts with a boy, Jamie. It always starts with a boy. Um, <laughs> My, my boyfriend at the time, my first boyfriend, um, who is now my at university, I'd, I'd been in Cambodia making documentaries for um, NGOs and my career was going to be a journalist. Um, then I found out I could get my degree paid for for free if I joined the Air Force. So I literally changed degrees, joined the Air Force on a scholarship and uh, 13 years later, uh, you know, I, I wrapped up my career. So. It was, it was a random choice, but sometimes the best adventures in life are always the random ones. Yeah, so it's a now, I do believe, uh, so your first boyfriend, because we did just cut out there, your first boyfriend also became your first husband and only husband and last husband, no more husbands. <laughs> so, so, so it's, uh, I also believe he's uh, a chaplain as well in the Air Force. Yeah, so he, he joined as a soldier uh, and then he commissioned to be a chaplain and, and he has his own beautiful story about the hu of human potential. Um, you know, soldiers in the military often feel like they um, you know, are put into a box in terms of their skills and aptitude. Um, when he commissioned, uh, after having his come to Jesus moment in the desert in Afghanistan, he, he tops Australia for his undergraduate and his master's degree, and now he's doing his PhD on a scholarship. And I just love that story of, of human potential and what incredible mentoring can do for someone. Yeah, so we we actually have a veteran working for us here at Kofkin Bond, Jordan, and and uh, he was saying that on now Jordan actually comes from uh, a very devout uh, family, uh, religious family background as well. But he said it was actually quite interesting because their church service on a Sunday uh, was absolutely all in total fun and everyone turned up because it was just so inclusive and everything that they actually did. I think that was in Townsville, was it, Jamie? Or? No, no, that was, that was in um, Wagga. Um, in Wagga, okay, yeah. Training. Um, yeah. Sunday was where they got to, I guess, express freedom a little bit um, going through training. Yeah. A fun fact is, you know, people say they usually become religious when they're in a war zone, but I'll tell you the reason why. It's because in Afghanistan, it was a dry camp, no alcohol. The only place you could get alcohol was if you came and took communion um, at mass on Sunday. So suddenly a whole bunch of people uh, converted, I think, to get a taste, sweet taste of that wine. That's great. Tell us, I guess, a bit of, you know, you, you had 13 years experience and, and a lot of tours in that. Um, you know, I guess what's some highlights that you took out of your service and, you know, I guess it's got you to where you are today. Um, but during that 13 years, what's some sort of key messages that you took out? I think that there is no better formative leadership journey than joining the military and especially joining it at, in the geopolitical climate that I did. Um, you know, 2011, uh, you know, up until last year. So for my 21st birthday, I was leading a team of 45 um, troops in Papua New Guinea, doing some really sensitive, uh, politically sensitive work. Uh, then, you know, my 22nd birthday, I was shutting down a base in Afghanistan. My 24th birthday, I was in the Middle East managing the supply chain for a, an aircraft that had never deployed before. Um, so, 
you very quickly learn how to look after people and you very quickly learn how to influence your environment to achieve the outcomes that you need to. Uh, and so I'm so grateful for that leadership experience as a, as a young woman. Um, and it's definitely something that I will carry with me, the way that I treat people and the way that I achieve outcomes. Shams, I was going to ask a question there. Um, uh, when we were chatting with uh, Kyle Tyrrell, and you know, retired Lieutenant Colonel. And one of the things that I mentioned to Kyle when it comes to leadership and in his role, and you know, we both know uh, Kyle as a great leader of Carry On, um, an amazing leader. And one of the things I actually mentioned to Kyle is that when a listed company makes a mistake, it costs the shareholders money. Uh, when a business like our own makes a mistake, it costs me money, comes out of my pocket. Well, Jamie's a shareholder now, so part out of his pocket too. Um, but when you make a mistake, it potentially costs limbs or lives. Uh, so when you actually have to make those decisions. And logistics absolutely amazes me. But, you know, just being able to ensure, like you, you just mentioned just briefly there, of closing up a camp at the age of 22, being in charge of closing up a camp. I mean, it's... um. You, we, you are working in a very testosterone-driven, fear-driven, uh, male-dominated industry. And when I say fear, because, you know, you, you actually, you can't not be alert uh, when you're in a war zone whatsoever. So how, how were you accepted, number one? Uh, did you feel any difference? Uh, did you ever have a period where you felt like you weren't being accepted like you should because you're a female? Um, a female officer, or secondly, um, how were you even in, you know, with the locals who might not have uh, necessarily have been used to a woman officer being in charge? Definitely. There's a lot of que lot of questions in there, Shamsa. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. think that um, you know, the the Afghanistan example is a, is a really nice example of humanity. Um, so in Afghanistan, I was actually working for the U.S. Army, and I was in charge of shutting down all of their base services contracts in um, a small camp in Afghanistan. It was kind of in the backwaters, uh, and I had a whole team about 30 Afghan men working for me, uh, and. I was very conscious that I was a woman in that space, and I was only—it was only—I was only the second woman to ever have deployed in that role for for that reason. Uh, but what I found was that I became androgynous in that situation, and that those the Afghan men there working for America at that time was their livelihood, their absolute livelihood, and they were so grateful for the opportunity that had been presented to them. But at the same time, they were risking a lot to be aligning themselves with NATO forces. Uh, you know, the Taliban knew where they lived, they knew who their family were, and so a lot of the time they weren't from the region that we were in. Uh, I remember one story, there was a US lieutenant and he was an absolute cluster, as we say in the military, and just nearly caused an international incident. Anyway, we got it under control. And I remember I was, I was kind of yelling at him going into my, was probably my mum voice now, but back then was definitely my military voice. And I was knife handing him and, you know, telling him off. And then I paused and realised that 
um, some of my Afghan contractors were right behind me. And I thought, oh, no, they're watching this woman yell at this man. That's really inappropriate. And so I stopped and I turned around and they were laughing their heads off. They found it <laughs> hilarious that I was, you know, taking on this guy and putting him back in his box. And that was a moment where things changed. And we worked really collegiately together. Um, during Ramadan, you know, we broke fasts together. Um, their wives would make me jewelry and bread and bring it in because they thought it was hilarious that their husbands were working for this, you know, Australian woman. Um, and being a Christian and then being Muslim, there were some similarities there that we could kind of joke about. Um, and what I found out is, uh, and what it taught me is that, you know, we're all just humans just trying to make our mark in the world and, and achieve whatever it is we feel like we've been called to do. And it kind of takes the ego out of it. And, you know, I, I know a lot of your listeners are in um, positions of power and influence. And, you know, in the day when you strip all of that back, you're a human just trying to make the world better. And so even though I was on the other side of the world with people who were working away from their families, in some cases, we were just humans getting it done together. Um, and so what I learned is I'm not gender blind. 100% there is gender issues. And because of that, it's driven me towards the career that I have where I'm always looking to support um, women and close gender pay gaps and I address inequities within the system and within teams. But what I try to capture is how do I use my femininity and the uniqueness of that femininity in a military context um, and in a consulting one as well? How do I capture my strength and my gentleness and that unique intersection that I bring? And, and how do I then contribute to a team trying to make the world a little bit better? So it becomes my superpower. Oh, absolutely, it does. It's interesting you speak about the Afghanis. I mean, I've had the pleasure through another not-for-profit I do some work with uh, called Settlement Services International to meet uh, um, a lot of very new arrivals who, you know, the Australian government has, you know, increased the arrivals that are coming from Afghanistan as well. And they are actually very beautiful, humble people. And it's it's interesting that when you hear about what was happening with the Taliban and you know, when we were speaking offline, I told you of speaking to one young girl there who's probably 20-odd, and she's getting an internship at uh, Minter Ellison. And she said one of the things is she was lucky because she grew up in the generation uh, there where she was one for a very long time, uh, so it had been a long time uh, before this was able to happen. But she was actually able to be educated all the way through the school system there. And she was actually able to study. And she said, now that she's come to Australia, she's going to be able to put her study uh, and her education to really good use. And I just thought that was just so wonderful in respect to what she was talking about of the changes and the opportunities that she's actually was given through education over there. And we're talking about, you know, there's, when you have, you mentioned inequality there, when you have equality, of education, equality of the sexes, it actually just creates a stronger and better society in general. I agree with that. And, you know, things like International Women's Day, and, you know, they roll me out to do the keynote speeches every time they need sort of an inspiring female or whatever. But really what I talk about is actually changing the systems and systemic barriers and I do a lot of work with First Nations people at Deloitte now and so intergenerational trauma, systemic injustice, how do we actually break down some of that and so if you're in a position of power it's how do I use this to to further you know further the equity conversation and it's a beautiful quote by Rupi Kaur, 
in Indian Canadian author, poet, and she says, I stand on the sacrifices of a million women before me thinking, what can I do to make this mountain higher so the women who come after me can see further? And I just love that. Oh, it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. It, it is, it's, you know, you, you speak about that in the inequalities. We've, uh, we do a lot of work with the Nova Paris Foundation. Uh, we have a great relationship with Nova. And, and even with Adam Goods, uh, who was a guest speaker at our conference last year, and uh, Nova is presenting for us around the country in May. And one of the things that she spoke about was she, there's, it's breaking that poverty cycle as well within the First Nations people as well. It's actually breaking the poverty cycle, whereas she will actually be the first generation that will be able to leave some type of inheritance for her children. And her children have actually all gone on to be, be successful in their own right as well. Or, you know, young Jack, her son, who's just finished year 12 last year, is just on the rookie list now with St Kilda Football Club. And so they've actually been given these real opportunities. And, that, and Adam's story was inspirational last year when he first got his first contract with um, Sydney. And his accountant actually asked him, you don't spend much money, Sydney pay for your accommodation, what do you want to do with this? And he said, well, no one in my family's ever owned a house, I'd love, I'd love to buy a house for my mum. So he put 50% of his wage away and, and went and bought a house for his mum. You know, and it's uh, because the average life of a footballer is about three years and 27 games. So he didn't know he was going to, it was a 20 odd year career, Jamie, I think with Adam Goods. Um, so he didn't know that, yeah, so he didn't know it was going to be that long. But that's that's the type of thing where they're actually now given the opportunity, whereas we might be in the first, second or even third, in some cases, uh, generational wealth transfer, where for them and even new arrivals, the new Afghani refugees, they're not going to they're not going to one day in the next twenty years receive an inheritance of property that our baby boomer parents bought, you know, forty years ago and things like that as well. So it is actually when we talk about inequality, trying to bring equality back in is through I, I still think it's education creates opportunity, opportunity then creates uh, the ability to be able to have a life which is fairer and being able to help support your own children and break that poverty cycle and or uh, break the inequality in just the gender biases and things like that as well. And I think that's something that you do amazingly well, Shamsa. I think that, um, you know, we need to recognise that we live in a colonial and patriarchal society that was created by colonisers and men to benefit them. So when we talk about trying to empower women or to, and try to empower First Nations or trying to empower immigrants or whatever it is, we need to acknowledge what who the system was created for and why. Um, and that's why I, you know, I'm very passionate about talking about systemic and true change. Um, and so, you know, that's why even with, when you look at the work that you guys are doing with veterans, some, you know, some veterans, going back to a point you just made, very similar to footballers. So they, they deploy, they go tax-free for this huge sum of money. They come home, they've never had that wealth before, um, and they will blow it. And and so that's why they buy I buy a black V8 ute. Yeah, with no insurance, yeah, because their credit record's crap. Uh, yeah. And they crash it. 
and that story happens all the time. And I've had members that, you know, have had to declare bankruptcy. And I think you made, you know, 80 grand tax free last year, um, you know, as a young soldier. Where is that? Um, so I think, you know, the education piece you just spoke to is really, really important. Um, but also acknowledging, you know, if anyone is listening and doesn't understand the history of this country, um, have a read into why um, some people are predisposed to not graduate high school or to, you know, have addictions and um, substance abuse issues. You know, we are, we have created a we've created a country that doesn't exist for the benefit of a whole bunch of people, women and First Nations included. Even then, the workday, you know, a nine to five workday that was created by by men assuming that they had a caretaker at home to look after to run the household. Now we're not seeing that now because of you know the cost of living we have both parents working um, and who and who suffers the most. We know that women you know it will suffer more because they take that career break because they're not putting money into their super because that compounding is not happening for them. Uh, and then when you have high divorce rates they then divorce someone in their husband in their 50s and they're stuck with a, with no super. Um, and so there's all this intergenerational and and systemic oppression that causes a whole bunch of this. It's not just about International Women's Day morning teas and, you know, being an ally and patting each other on the back. It's how can I use my position of influence to make a difference for the people around me? And whether you have influence, you know, on paper or not, you cannot not influence. And I gave a speech, the International Women's Day keynote speech for the Department of Defence. And the theme, the UN women's theme was about climate and we spoke about climate change and why women are um, 14 times more likely to suffer effects of disaster than men. Um, and one of the things I spoke to them about was the climate around them. And I said, you know, you are responsible for the climate around you. Are you comfortable with the temperature others feel? So you might not be able to influence policy. You might not be able to, you know, influence the systemic change, but you can absolutely influence how you make the people around you feel. Um, and that's a really important takeaway, I think. I think I think that's beautifully said, and it's and that was a very powerful speech that you gave as well at International Women's Day. But moving on from that, though, Shamsi, you, you've actually now gone and joined the civilian life and working at Deloitte's. But the passion that we just saw come through there, and what you're talking about, is now what you bring into organisations in respect of your consulting role uh, at uh, Deloitte. So they've you, they've they've really seen to have allowed you to unleash your passion in respect to what you're doing, working the ESG side with companies and uh, et cetera uh, on that. So do you just want to touch on that and the difference of, say, you know, going from military to the civilian life and dealing with corporations? Mm. I'm very, very thankful to Deloitte um, for allowing me the space to work out what I want to be when I grow up. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I always thought, that the big four were gross capitalist firms, and I've been a client of them. Um, I could never, ever see myself working for a big consulting company, ever. Um, and that was my own bias and, and my own experience as well as a client. Um, but what I realised is that you know, the career that I've had has given me a social justice lens. You can't experience and see the things that I've seen around the world and not have a social justice lens. And I realised that I could actually be using some of this gross capitalist um, reach for good. And I was really thankful that Deloitte were willing to partner with me on that. And so the work that I do at Deloitte, I'm in workforce transformation, but my background is in is in logistics and project management. And I mean, I have a HR degree, but who cares what anyone did in their undergrad? Um, 
But what I found is that I loved logistics because of the impact you could make on people. You know, you're pulling levers that then have an operational effect that make people's lives easier. Um, and so combining people and operations together is a really powerful intersection. And how do I then get organisations to understand that, you know, DEI, for example, diversity, equity, inclusion, is not about a nice strategy or slide seven of your, you know, board meeting. It's actually about how do you create inclusive decision making so that you're getting better decisions. So then you have, uh, you know, better innovation. So then you're rising to the top in your sector. So then you're getting better consumer value. So it's actually linking diversity, equity, inclusion to social impact and understanding that social impact can have an influence on your operating model. It can have influence on how you invest, which affects your returns. So it's absolutely about creating business value and not about fluffy words and, you know, an academic in the corner selling you a strategy that, you know, sits on the shelf. And so the what I'm seeing is the clients that get that, the clients that understand um, the work and organisational redesign that increases business value or social impact to increase business value, which is what we call the third wave of DE&I, they're the ones that are becoming more successful. And consumers is demanding that now and workforce is demanding that now, especially look at the mining industry. How do you convince, you know, a generation of woke, uh, you know, sustainable kids to join a mining firm? Right now, there's no way they would join half of them. But the ones that they do want to join, the ones they are joining, are the ones that go, crap, we really need to get our sustainability in gear. We need to make sure that we're having inclusive governance models with career pathways that mean that people from diverse backgrounds can rise all the way to the top and not looking around the board and seeing a bunch of, you know, middle-aged white men and going, crap, we, the, the board in 20 years is can't look like this because we literally don't even have these kind of people in the world anymore. Um, and the people that have power in the world don't look like us anymore. So how do we create pathways? How do we create the right workforce? How do we invest sustainably so that we still have a business in 20 years? And I know that this is what you're talking to your clients about as well. Um, so that kind of work is really exciting for me at Deloitte because it's it's bringing together my passions of social justice and social impact and people and, and equity, but in a way that still makes commercial sense. Um, and so that's been really exciting. And I've also done a lot of Fed government work and Royal Commission work and strategy work. Um, and it's, it's really cool to find my tribe. The move from defence to consulting was interesting and there is you know some people that look at you and go oh you're a young female veteran what do you know about life um and I look at them and I think mate you did your MBA at ANU or Melbourne Business School you sat in this office for 10 years to get your name on a door to make you know heaps of money but what have you seen of the world have well you they ever went on to... they might have went on a Contiki tour when they were oh, 18 Europe yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I don't think you remember much of those Contiki tours, though, do you? So, no. I, and and what I think no is, you know, some some of those consultants and you know some of the my colleagues are accepted in this because honestly my teams are amazing. But some of these consultants have never had to live with the um, outcomes of their own advice, right? And so when I think when I look at um, the experiences I've had, you know, I've made literal life and death decisions in war zones and the, the diversity that I'm bringing to that team is really important. So now what and what Deloitte is saying is we need the we need the purebred consultants that have been in forever because they know the business. We need them. But we need people like me who bring lived experience and have been clients. And together we're really, really powerful. And that's why we talk about diversity of teams. And that is for all intersectionalities. But um, but in consulting um, I've been very thankful to, to find my tribe. I still miss the Defence Force every day, 
Um, but what I'm realizing is that, you know, we can all have an impact in different ways. And so I'm really excited for the next chapter of my career. Uh, Shamsa, just just over the last couple of minutes, if it's okay, uh, could you just reread the quote you just read out, please, from your speech at International Women's Day? Do you still have that up? Uh, or if you memorise it at the top of your head, just in respect of the difference uh, you make in respect of the temperature when we speak about climate change. Now, could you just reread that for me again, please? I think it was yeah. very powerful. So it's, um, you are the, res uh, oh, let me now, I've forgotten it. Oh yeah, you are okay. You are responsible for the climate around you. Are you comfortable with the temperature others feel? Yeah, and then you, you made a comment before that as well that you, you know, as individuals, it's really hard to make a difference. And you were speaking about the the young woke culture, you know, whether they go and work in a mining company and things like that. But I'd like to highlight something for you, if that's okay, because you're the next generation of inspirational leaders for not just young women, but for young people in general, uh, that anything in life can actually be achieved. But as an individual, you have achieved so much for equality, the, the military, the armed forces in general, uh, proving that there are no barriers to what you want to do and your passion of what you just stated earlier uh, has just just really strikes through. So, in respect to you as an individual, uh, now that you, I mean, you know, now you're with Deloitte now and you're leading a team, but you as an individual and that passion is what is going to create all the necessary changes required in the world. So that's from me to you, uh, having known you now for a couple of years. You are an absolute inspiration to us middle-aged white men uh, who are, don't have biases and can be flexible. There's a few of us around. Uh, but secondly, too, it's it's also you're an absolute inspiration to the next generation. People like my nieces who you know are current, currently at university and studying law and things like that. And the next uh, where they want to go that. You know, having women like yourself as role models, having uh, people like my sister um, as their mother and things like that, that's the next generation. That's the generation that are going to lead us into a better world. So from me to you, Shamsa, I would like to say thank you uh, for everything you've done as an individual because the difference that you're going to create, the legacy that you're going to leave, you know, many, many, you've got another 60 odd years left, but uh, the legacy that you're going to leave is going to have major impact, uh, positive impact uh, for society. So thank you. And I sincerely appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to actually be with us today as well. Thanks so much, Tony and Jamie. Um, my final plug would be for women who are listening, who perhaps are in male dominated environments or don't know how to uh, contextualise their leadership in the space that they're in is to check out our our blog so propel her defense women's leadership series it has a really cool story behind it and i'm happy to connect with anyone and talk about it but i think you'll get you'll find some really unique insights from women in the military uh, all over that website that just like me so thank you so much for your jamie, time if you can put if you can put that uh link in uh when we put the podcast out that'd be wonderful will do thanks very much for your time shams i really appreciate meeting you um and hearing your story Thanks so much. The Kofkin Bond Podcast is a product from Kofkin Bond & Co, which we are an authorised representative of Gown Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of the Kofkin Bond Podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. 
do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Pond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond and Co. and the hosts of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.